Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. school um on the south side of indianapolis i had a friend uh, you know a best friend uh this friend moved to the north side of indianapolis which as an adult and particularly now as someone who's lived for the last you know going on 20 years in southern california the south side and the north side of indianapolis aren't far from one another at all but when you're a kid and your friend who literally lived in the apartment complex next to your apartment complex moves from the south side to the north side they moved to mars yeah in many ways it was it was like he had moved to mars exactly so on the occasions that are you know my dad or his mom you know who were both uh, single parents at that time on the occasions that they would figure out ways to get us together i mean i used to love visiting him on the north side specifically because he lived walking distance from the Broad Ripple area. And oh, okay. so and so this was, you know, when I towards the end of elementary school for me, uh, this friend and I, we were both really into Marvel comics. For me it was it was X-Men, for him it was Amazing Spider-Man, for both of us it was Rom Space Knight. And we were both That's a that's a deep cut. I've never <laughs> met anyone who was super into Rom Space Knight. That was the first comic that I ever collected. I was aware of superheroes in popular culture you know the christopher reeve superman movie and uh the 60s batman tv show which which of course you know was in syndication at that point i remember a cross-country trip in the family station wagon where we stopped at a gas station and bought the superman versus muhammad ali comic (laughs) which was like a big cultural thing i guess at that time but it wasn't until rom space night then I became full-on comic book kid. So you're not you're not just a Marvel hipster. You are a cosmic Marvel hipster. <laughs> yes, which uh, <laughs> which is really crazy to see that coming into uh, into fruition on the big screen right now. That yeah, that's real secret hand handshake shit. Yeah, and even more so with Rom because and obviously I wasn't that cognizant of this minutia as a kid, but. Rom was actually a license from Parker Brothers, the board game company, one of their few uh, and failed attempts to make like an action figure G.I. Joe type doll, basically. So that, so yeah, so this is actually really fascinating. So Rom Space Knight was this very crappy toy. Not a good toy. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, it, it's funny because years later, I mean, as an adult, you know, maybe 10 years ago, I got really excited about buying a Rom toy from ebay and i had another friend who's about our age 
who uh, also read ROM as a kid, um, which wasn't like a super popular title by any means. And, and my friend warned me. He was like, you've got nostalgia for this, and you think that the toy's going to be cool. It isn't. It sucked. It only sucked. It sucked then. It's going to suck now. And he was absolutely right. <laughs> it's, it sucks. But what happened was... Oh, my was, God. I, I just Googled it. It's so shitty. It's so shitty. And, you know, what happens, you know, anyone listening to this who's watched the uh, Toys That Made Us documentary series on Netflix, each episode focuses on a different toy brand and basically goes through the whole history of its creation. Uh, there's a Star Wars episode, a He-Man episode, G.I. Joe, Barbie, Transformers, and it's really amazing uh, to see, you know, the stories behind these things that were such important parts of our early development and then to learn like, oh, <laughs> when they were working on He-Man, uh, someone was ordered by someone else to take this tiger from this jungle line that didn't sell and repurpose it for He-Man somehow. Oh, and, yeah, I remember yeah. seeing something about that. One guy says to the other guy, like, this is he's it's too big. Like, I mean, he could He-Man could ride this tiger and the boss says, then throw a saddle on it. And that's how we got Battle Cat. <laughs> it's like... You know, for, for kids that were super into He-Man, like, Battle Cat's a big deal, you know? Yeah. Um, and G.I. Joe's another one where, you know, Larry Hama, who wrote the, uh, Hama, Hama, Kirsten, Kirsten, um, <laughs> who wrote the uh, G.I. Joe comic series for Marvel, uh, was a genius. And he was constantly being tasked with, okay, here's this dude uh, in a Arctic snow outfit that comes with a snowmobile. And he was figuring out deep backstories and mythologies and storylines for all of these characters that were constantly being thrown at him. So my understanding is, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Rom operated the same way. In order to, uh, well, I know this to be a fact with uh, cartoon shows, the uh, the whole cart before the horse, like the characters, the product, quote unquote, had to originate in some other medium before it was a toy. In right. order for the toy to then be on TV and not count as a commercial. As much as the Ninja Turtles cartoon or the G.I. Joe cartoon were there to sell toys, there's something in the legality of it where you had to, like, they had to originate in the show or originate in a comic book or somewhere else before they were made as a toy. So anyway, that's that. all that stuff's fascinating. I definitely recommend that Netflix series. Um, another spicy tidbit from that is... Uh, when Kenner, a you know Hoosier Illusion, a small company from neighboring Ohio, right in our neck of the woods, mm. they were the only toy company that would take on Star Wars, which was you know no one predicted it was going to be yeah uh, even a break even success, let alone what it became. And George Lucas had shopped the toy rights to all the bigger players and and had the doors you know proverbially slammed in his face. He does this deal with Kenner, and because it was the only company even willing, um, the deal was very lopsided in Kenner's favor. It was something like, you know, they were getting like 99 cents on the dollar for those toys. So, you know, Star Wars becomes Star Wars, and obviously the Kenner toys were, you know, massive beyond anyone's wildest dreams. Lucas, who was very famously a shrewd dealmaker, of course, uh, was you know, for Loses years, mind. <laughs> un unhappy about the, yeah, the deal there. During the 90s, long after the original trilogy and before things kicked back into gear with the prequel trilogy, 
there was a clause in the original Kenner contracts done by these, you know, small small town lawyers from Ohio uh, that said uh, in order for Kenner to maintain the license, they had to pay Lucasfilm a minimum of $10,000 a year. So if for some reason there was a year when the Lucas share of the profits weren't at least $10,000, somebody needed to write a $10,000 check just to keep the license going. Just a mechanism that's that's triggered in the agreement. Well, yeah. it, it, there was some year in the 90s where the Star Wars toy merchandising had ground to enough of a halt that that threshold wasn't hit and someone in Ohio forgot to write the check and over that $10,000 mistake... Kenner lost the rights and had to renegotiate with Lucasfilm <laughs> to get them back. <laughs> uh, so, and that's all in that documentary. It's, it's hilarious yeah. and awesome. Uh, and very, very Midwest when you see this poor lawyer from Kenner <laughs> telling the story about someone forgetting to do that. Yeah. Good thing they had 30 years of Star Wars toy profits to uh, yeah, to, to, to fall back on. To dry their tears with, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, dry, dry your tears with a few... Uh, a few thousand hundred dollar bills. Yeah, good point. So yeah, so Rom Space Knight was this toy uh, that was licensed to Marvel, and all that was, there was very little on the back of the box describing who Rom was, you know, uh, what's his mission, <laughs> what, are these, <laughs> what are these weapons and instruments that come with him. And it basically just said, you know, something to the effect of Rom Space Knight has come, you know, from the distant world of Galador battling the dire wraiths who have come to earth and he's here, you know, so on and so on. Well, Marvel took that little tiny bit of character exposition and, you know, created this amazing story and this big mythology that as much as it, it did collide with the cosmic part of the Marvel universe, it also told a lot of really small stories in a very sort of, you know, there was a lot of fish out of water stuff. Uh, you know, Rom lands in a small Midwesternish farm town. You know, it had it had a lot of the cool sort of fifties uh, B movie alien invasion. There was a lot of uh, you know the dire race or shapeshifters. So there was a lot of um, much like the scrolls. You yeah. know, a lot of uh, invasion of the body snatchers type stuff happening in those stories. And just as importantly, Rom was. Uh, integrated fully into the Marvel Universe. So, yeah, I saw a crossover cover with him fighting Wolverine. Yeah, so the, so the toys, the toy came and went, and then the, the comic went on uh, for 75 issues, which as an adult, it's one of the only, you know, at some point I purged most of my comics, and that, that's one entire run that I kept, all 75 and all the annuals. And yeah, uh, in that 75-issue run, the X-Men are introduced somewhere around issue 18, pretty early. You know, the X-Men and Rom converge around this villain. And, of course, you know, like most of these classic stories, at first they fight and then they team up. That was my entry point to the X-Men. And it was huh. because of my love of Rom Space Knight that I discovered the X-Men and went and bought my first Uncanny X-Men issue, which was 170-something. But, uh, but that was, you know, my X-Men, which became my first real big fandom, you know, outside of Rome uh, was because of Rome. And then throughout the run, you know, there's one of my favorite Rom covers is Rom, Power Man, and Iron Fist storming the Baxter building. The whole, uh, oh, also Rom was my introduction to Galactus. 
Rom was the herald of Galactus for like three issues. <laughs> like, <laughs> at a certain point, Mar Marvel lost the rights to uh, Rom, which presents some interesting problems when it comes to uh, trade paperbacks and things like that because Rom appeared in other books. It was, it, you know, aside from Saturday morning cartoons, it was my first real indoctrination into the Fantastic Four. Um, Shang-Chi, the master of Kung Fu, was, showed up. Uh, Jack of all hearts, like a lot of even obscure sort of C and D list. Yeah, that's Marvel a really universe. weird side entry into the universe. Yeah, especially for for him to then be uh, more or less retconned out of Marvel history. Yeah. Um, because once they lost the, the licensing, that was it. And there were a couple of appearances. I'm not hip to all of them, uh, but there were a couple of times where they would sneak the humanoid version of Rom. I think Spider-Man's wedding to Mary Jane was one of them, where he was like at the wedding as a human and no one said his name. Um, but there were like hints about, you know, if you were in the know, you knew who it was. Because the things that they lost that went back to Parker Brothers were his look, his name, and whatever was on that description on the back, which was basically just Galador and Dire Wraiths. So everything Marvel created about what dire rates look like and what their motivations are and how their society is structured and all, all of that is that was all Marvel. Just the name came from the back of the box. And same with the planet of Galador. So what's happened in recent years is uh, IDW, one of the bigger independent comic companies, now has the rights to roam and relaunched the character. And it's super weird because it's it looks like Rom and he's from Galador and he fights dire rates, but everything else is totally different <laughs> because it has to be, they can't do any of the Marvel stuff and Marvel can't do those couple of things that IDW can now do. And then it gets even more confusing because IDW uh, has the rights to all of the Hasbro characters. And now that, you know, there's been, I, I don't know if, you know, no one's been able to do it. And so everyone's changing their plans all the time. But since, since there's been this rush in Hollywood, for every studio to have their own Marvel Cinematic Universe shared universe thing, whether it's the Dark Universe or Hasbro has hoped and has been developing their own shared cinematic universe, which would be Transformers, G.I. Joe, Rom Space Knight, and Micronauts. <laughs> and they've tried to set the stage for this. Exactly. They've tried to set the, set the stage for this in comics with IDW. I don't know how successful or not successful that that's been, but um, the Micronauts are, are another uh, license that was, you know, at Marvel at one time and were, I believe, part of the Marvel universe. I didn't, I never collected that book, but, um, but I mean, Rom, one hundred and ten percent was was in the Marvel universe and then was gone. Is is your broadful friend? Are, is there like a, uh, a reveal that you're going to do, or is this someone I know, or is this like a rando kid that you're friends with? It's not someone you know. There, there's not a reveal, but there, although there is an interesting, there is an interesting kind of uh, full circle moment. Uh, and I, I learned a lot of things being friends with this kid. Uh, for starters, you know, this was the early to mid '80s when we were in elementary school together. His name was Gion, G-U-I-O-N, which was insane in 1984 in Indiana. Uh, his sister's name was Kea, um, and their parents were, um, you know, old hippies. Not old, not old, but former hippies at that, at that point. Being yeah. a hippie wasn't all that long ago. They, they were probably younger than we are now. Yeah, ex oh, absolutely. They called them John and Cindy instead of dad and mom. 
They had a pet rabbit that ran around their apartment. You know, these are all things, you know, it might sound passe now in the age of avocado toast and kale, but... Um, but in 1984, that's insane. Was in, in 1984, on the south side of Indianapolis, in the uh, subsidized lower income portion of these neighboring apartment complexes that that he and I both lived in, you know, me with my single mom at the time, you know, his dad uh, was a crusader for POWs and MIAs from Vietnam. So as a kid, even just being around that, that was like a thing that I was learning about. Um, you know, they were big fans of Bob Dylan and like, you know, just stuff that I was exposed to just in going to their apartment a lot. One formative thing, Guillen's family used to have tea time where his mom and dad and sister and him and eventually, you know, the dad was out of the picture, just the three of them. And then whoever was over, which was usually me, uh, at a point in time, I think it was every night, it might've been once a week. His mom, you know, Cindy would make tea, um, and she'd make it uh, English style um, with milk, uh, which you know now that it's almond milk and whatnot. But that's I've always always had tea that way since then, uh, really? as, as a preference, and it's and it's because of that. <laughs> and uh, we that's that's something totally random that I I never knew about you. Here we are. We, yeah. the, the show the show is already a success for us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, things I haven't thought about. I haven't thought about why I drink tea that way in decades until right now. And by the way, I didn't think I wanted to talk about formative childhood stuff. And then as soon as we're in it, I'm... Yeah, yeah. there's no way that I'm letting you out of that. And I know it's going to be uncomfortable at certain points, but that's <laughs> why we're here. Yeah, and I was really trying to goad you into going first and then just <laughs> taking up all of our time, to be totally honest. Uh, so... <laughs> I, I know your games. <laughs> <laughs> you do. One of the few. I'm proud. Uh, tea time. So she would make this tea and um, pass around a different book. And each of us would read a chapter aloud and then pass it to the next person. And that was, in fourth and fifth grade, how I read The Hobbit. That was my introduction to The Hobbit. Which, again, like The Hobbit is a pretty ubiquitous thing now. In 1984, it wasn't like the kids at school were talking about Michael Jackson. They weren't talking about Tolkien. You know? And yeah. going over to you, Ian's you house. You were living Stranger Things. Living, yes. Yeah, and that was that was how I first read The Hobbit. That's how I experienced, you know, that was my introduction to The Lord of the Rings and all of that. And most prominently, they were my introduction to vegetarianism. Uh, so when people ask me how long have you been a vegetarian, and I say since I was 11, then they get this weird look on their face. It's uh, the Bentley family. They were vegetarian. That was something I was sort of aware of being over there. Had my first Morningstar Farms brand food over there. Uh, and really it was as simple as, uh, Guillen was at my house one day. I offered him some bologna from the refrigerator, said he wouldn't eat it because he was vegetarian. I asked him why, and he said, I don't think we should kill animals for food. And, you know, as few true lightning bolt moments as one can muster at this point in life, that was absolutely one of them. I, vi I have this vivid memory. You know, I couldn't tell you what I ate two days ago, but I have a vivid memory of standing in my kitchen on the south side of Indianapolis and Creekside South Apartments uh, with him that afternoon and it clicking with me right then and there, just in that moment. Just like, yeah, never thought about that. You're totally mm -hmm. right. Um, not knowing, you know, 
not having any of the philosophical or uh yeah just a scientific or yeah just just a, a blink reaction to that yeah and so um by this point it was in the same apartment but i was living with my dad now and my dad came home and i told him you know i announced that i was vegetarian and he this was uh one of the periods where the mcrib was back yeah he uh went out and got mcribs for he and my brother and i and we all sat at the table and he was like uh you're not getting up until you eat your dinner you're finishing you're eating that it's like i'm a vegetarian i'm not gonna eat that yes you are you're not getting up until you do okay so i sat there i don't know how long you know in the self-mythologizing that happens <laughs> uh you know it, it could be easily be turned into, it was hours i was there till four in the morning <laughs> yeah. um, it might have been 30 minutes i don't know but it was it was long enough that, you know, they were finished and had moved on to whatever else they were doing. And long enough that my dad came back to the table and was like, you're serious about this. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm serious. And he was like, all right. And aside from cracking jokes, he never bothered me about it again. He never tried to talk me out of it. He never, uh, he certainly never like, you can this, you can't that. Um, he, it was like, that was sort of the, the test and I passed, you know. Yeah, one of those moments where you think your dad's being a dick, but then you figure out that there's some method to it. Yes. Maybe he was still being a dick, but at least, like, there was a point. A couple of other friends uh, who were in our friend group. Uh, so it was Guillen and I, another friend of ours, Casey Stravers, uh, who I'm, I'm still in touch with via the Book of Faces and so on. He's, he's an indie still. Uh, Dave Rogers, who's also still an indie. And um, our friend Alex, who passed away a few years ago. Um, that was kind of our, and another friend of ours, Jason Atkins, who was part of that group for a while. And it sort of was our own stranger things, except authentic and not fake because it actually was the eighties in Indiana. Um, <laughs> but that was our group. And it was, uh, you know, without speaking out of turn for my friends, Dave's parents were divorced. Um, Dave ran away from home in like eighth grade. You know, there was a lot of trouble there. Casey, when we first met him in second grade was named Bill. Bill and his sister were adopted by a new family and given new names. And this was all, you know, they didn't switch schools. You know, it was just like, hey, Bill is now Casey, which was short for Cornelius, which was not a name a second grader needed to be saddled with in Indiana. <laughs> 1984. I, so, I mean, it's like we were, you know, at the risk of, of punk rock mythologizing, we were a bunch of fucking weirdos. If I can interrupt for one moment, Please. when you said Casey Stravers, you've never said that name to me. And I was like, I couldn't remember where I heard it. We're f I'm Facebook friends with him. Oh, wow. And like, we've got 60 mutual friends, but I had no idea you were connected to him. And that's, that we, that we that's, go back to second grade. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that's Indianapolis for you. And this was our, you know, this was our crew. <laughs> and we were, and we were the crew that discovered, um, First it was punk rock and new wave together and then heavy metal and, and uh, you know, and so by high school, we all ended up at different high schools. Uh, Dave Rogers was at my high school uh, freshman year with me, but otherwise, um, we, and, I, and I think that was sort of, you know, that uh, fraternity we had going uh, drifted when we all ended up in different schools through middle school and then definitely high school. I reconnected with... Jason, 
in my 20s who uh, at that point was, was, yeah, an aspiring local rapper who had a group called Deep Concentration Camp and uh, was a five percenter uh, Muslim, as were uh, a couple of other guys in that group. And uh, we got reacquainted in the mid to late 90s. And then he moved to Atlanta, I think. Lost touch again, and then, yeah, we just reconnected on Facebook like maybe a year ago. Uh, but Gian was the best friend and the one that I spent the most time with, although we were all friends with each other and we were a group of friends. So my mom passed away when I was 11, and it was around winter break from school. And, you know, Gian and his mom came to the funeral. I went to spend the night over at their house. And it was that thing where, you know, when you were a kid, it was always like such an ask to to call for, on, for both parents, for the for the one who's hosting the other kid and for the other parents to call and ask for that, like, you know, vaunted second night. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we just thought we were getting away with something cool, like kind of, uh, you know, I would I so compartmentalized what I was actually going through. Um that my dad and his mom just kept saying yes. And I ended up spending almost the entirety of like the two week winter break at their house. Yeah. Um, so. Cause that's what you needed and that's what he needed. Yeah. And it was, um, yeah, I was, I'm very thankful for that. But so, yeah, so he and his mom and sister moved close to broad ripple, uh, walking distance from that main strip. And so at that time, you know, going to spend a weekend at his house, uh, in fifth and sixth grade, and walking to that strip, there was most significantly future shock, which was um, the the, e the the easiest way to describe it now would be like a proto hot topic. You know, before you know, hot topic yeah. being a national franchise, people are familiar with. But this was a local store in the eighties, probably began in the seventies. I don't know. I discovered it in the mid eighties, um, but it was a punk rock subculture clothing store like what you would imagine you know vivian westwood and malcolm mclaren hanging out at in the you know 1977 london and in fact uh the guy who ran it this guy tufty uh, was a british uh, you know expat who had somehow ended up in indiana he's in the punk band toxic reasons he and his wife partner um for a long time uh, ran that place together at some point i think when they split she took it over and I remember it moved locations a couple times. But at that time, in the mid-80s, into the late 80s, um, it was an epicenter. You know, it was it was the only place uh, that I could go in and, and find, you know, punk t-shirts and um, Doc Martens and flight jackets and, you know. Yeah, I got my first skateboard stuff. there. And, indeed. Um, down the street I, from there was a, a record store, uh, I believe it was called Second Time Around. But there was a punk record store in Broad Ripple at that time where I bought Black Flag Jealous Again on vinyl uh, during a, a weekend at Gian's. And I remember listening to it at home and my brother coming in my room and making fun of me. I was listening to it on the wrong speed on the record player uh -huh. and didn't know. So uh, my brother thought that was hilarious, which I'm sure it was. And uh, I always think about that when I think about that Black Flag record now. But yeah, like early, early seminal, you know, stuff. That it was just like a an oasis from the uh, redneckish uh, 
poor south side to get to go up to the north side and go to the cool punk record store and the cool punk clothing store. And also up there uh, was Comic Carnival, which was, you know, at, at that time there were, I think, a half a dozen of them around Indiana. And I believe, the last time I looked them up online, I, I didn't realize this until I was an adult, but apparently it's the longest running comic store maybe in the country. I think certainly in the Midwest. Really? Um, and I think there's still a location there. Um, but there were, but there were, there were two on the South side at one point. Um, but that North side one, for some reason had this, uh, weird magic to it. And, and one good memory of my dad from that era, I don't remember what it was that my brother had gotten. My brother had gotten some sort of, you know, at that time, uh, extravagant gift. You know, and again, I'm, I wasn't really even putting two and two together that this was something my dad was trying to figure out because our mom had just died. But, um, you know, he, he sort of weirdly to me at the time took me aside and was like, hey, do you, is there anything that you want? Like a big thing that, you know, a new bike, like, uh, you know, a thing, like a big yeah. present. And I said, and it was one of those like kind of Hail Marys, you know, I said, well, um, <laughs> They have an X-Men number one at Comic Carnival. <laughs> um, at that time, an X-Men number one, a mint condition one, was went for about 500 bucks. A, you know, good quality, but not mint, you know, was in that like 200, 250 range. And there was one there, it wasn't mint, but it was in very great shape, and it was priced at like $115 or something like that. Which, granted, that price in 1985 and for my family situation, you know, it might as well have been two, $3,000. Um, a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. He said yes. And that was, um, you know what I mean? It was like, it was a big thing. And, uh, yeah, he bought me that X-Men number one in 1985, 1986 for a hundred bucks. And it is, uh, 40 feet away from me right now. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's here. I've always held on to it. I've had many offers. People over the years wanting to take it off my hands. I can't imagine I'd ever part with it. Yeah, so talking about all of this sort of stuff and, and recognizing, you know, decades and decades later how crucial so much of that was, you know, whether it was uh, animal rights issues or um, Tolkien or <laughs> Marvel superheroes and, you know, all these things that are that are uh, ever-present Um today in all these you know myriad of ways and 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 all of it is reminding me too of, of the excellent piece that you wrote recently about the invisible ink that we leave on our children and uh, you know so much of of that is uh, coming into mind right now uh, a lot of it good you know i'm thinking yeah. of good thing i'm telling you good things uh about situations that i spent much of my life interpreting as only bad yeah and where, and where this brings us to that, you know, eventual meeting point, you and I had our first real conversation in Missing Link Records. That was a independent record store on the main strip in Broad Ripple, kind of a successor of sorts to that second time around place I was talking about. No relationship with it, but spiritual a, successor. a spiritual successor. Yeah, well put, um, uh, you know, another punk rock oriented, uh, you know, anyone who's seen the film High Fidelity, one of those kind of stores. Um, yeah. Where, uh, yeah, and there were like all the different archetypes. There was yes. like the adult hardcore dude, the hip hop dude, the Wiccan girl. Yeah, 
um, the Wiccan goth girl who was doing whippets in the back room. Um, <laughs> yeah, with like black lipstick, and then like you know, and then the uh, the elder statesman punk rock guys who looked down their nose at every kid that walked in and made them feel unwelcome in a way that was weirdly welcoming. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. When when you come in to buy the the Firestorm seven inch and they ask you if you've ever heard the Minutemen and you're like fuck off. I mean, I know that like you know Sam Hain played not far from there. You know, just prior to me being at a point where I would have known about that show and gone to it. You know, at some point in the eighties, that area of Indianapolis became the area for skateboarders. You know, Mohawk punks, gutter punks, eventually. Hardcore kids, straight edge kids, skinheads of both the white supremacist variety and the anti-racist variety. At one point, you know, when rave culture was a thing, it was like that was where everyone congregated. And in a city uh, with no, with, with not much to do, you know, we didn't have like some thriving skate park. We didn't have uh, good all ages venues. Now back back then it it was more of a cultural wasteland. Yeah, even even coffee shop culture wasn't. A, you know, we didn't have Starbucks yet. Even there was no. My, my point is, other than like Denny's and Perkins. Yeah, we didn't even really have the Abbey yet until like the mid nineties. Yeah, there was there was nowhere to go. So, uh, you know, loitering was was kind of if you weren't going to get into some sort of other trouble, what you were going to do on the weekends, and then this became. Uh, very true in my teenage years and into my early twenties was go stand around in Broderpool. Yeah, you go to the you go to the mall or you go to Broderpool. Yeah, you stand you stand in the parking lot of Roses and Lollipops, which was a little flower shop. And uh, now at Jimmy John's. <laughs> nice. Uh, is there still is the subway still across the street in the old post office? Um, the subway finally closed, and I think it's now like a vape shop. It was dangerous in a way that I wouldn't, that I sort of didn't comprehend even at the time. Whereas now, you know, as a parent, like, God, like, you're 13-year-old hanging out there? Are you kidding me? I mean, literally places where, like, you know, Nazi skinheads pulled knives on my friends and my friends pulled knives on Nazi skinheads. And, you know, like, crazy stuff happened, like, in this, you know, parking lot of a flower shop. Yeah. Which is, like, for context, anybody who isn't from Indy, that's, like, dead center of the village of Broderpool, as it's still called, like it's it's the main intersection where the bar strip and the shop strip kind of it's they intersect. So if you're coming and going from any direction, you're more than likely going to be in that intersection at some point. And on weekend nights, it's a total clusterfuck. I mean, the streets sometimes are just shut down essentially because people are spilling yeah. off the sidewalk into the street. Magnetic sixty second. Yeah, where, uh, 62nd Avenue becomes Broad Ripple. And, and it was a place where, you know, skipping ahead a little bit and, and actually kind of bringing us right around that time where you and I uh, got to know each other. I worked at Missing Link Records as the manager at one point. My first professional journalism job was with Nuvo News Weekly, which was headquartered in Broad Ripple. Um, I waited tables at a Mexican restaurant there. I waited tables at a Greek and Middle Eastern restaurant there, <laughs> you know, off and mm -hmm. on all throughout, you know, when Bernard Down was touring and, and doing stuff and I was freelancing for Metal Maniacs and Circus. I was still waiting tables at the Parthenon in Broderpool. Uh, you know, my my older brother worked the door at the Vogue and the, or sorry, the patio at various patio, points. Yeah. And, um, you know, he played in local bands that did kind of that bar circuit. The Good Earth is another uh, 
great reference point here because th that was there in the 80s. And again, I don't know when that started, but this was in a, the 70s. That makes sense. So it was a health food store in an old house with uh, hardwood floors that were sort of crooked um, that smelled like patchouli when you walked in that had, you know, soy milk in boxes on the shelves at room temperature. And by no means was it a vegan vegetarian store. It was a health food store. But as a young vegetarian and going to visit, you know, my friend in Broad Ripple on the weekends in fifth and sixth grade and so on, it, you know, health food stores were either the types of places that eventually became like GNCs that were in the mall and the good earth. That was it. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was obviously no whole foods and whatever, but you know, in, in terms of uh, finding health food. Well, and like we've talked about, like health food stores back then were repositories of secret knowledge, yes. you know, like yes. unless, unless you had access to like books or new people, like, you went to Good Earth and you learned things that you didn't know existed and that only they had. Like you weren't going to get tofu scrambler anywhere else. You weren't going to even know how to use uh, nutritional yeast unless somebody there explained it to you or you could like bought a cookbook probably from them because you weren't going to be able to get it at – I can't even remember what the bookstores were back then. But I mean there wasn't Barnes & Nobles or Borders. You know, There were like bookstores in the mall – that had, you know, the top sellers and like a couple random titles, but yeah, you yeah. weren't going to get like deep, <laughs> deep catalog. I, I moved to the North side myself as an adult. Uh, my friend Drew Pierce and I got an apartment together in 1994. And then I was more or less on the North side for the rest of the time that I was in Indianapolis, you know, hovering around that same sort of magnetic 62nd area. Yeah. Um, you know, at, you know, living walking distance from the Atlas Grocery where David Letterman was once alleged to have bagged groceries. Yeah, where um, we used to go buy Tofuti frozen dessert, and one of the guys who ran the place was annoyed and told us that it wasn't for us because it was a kosher food. <laughs> and we were we were fucking up their inventory uh, by being, I guess, by being by uh, buying things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, by being Gentiles, uh, you know, trying to buy food that was not meant for us. So would this be a good point to, to change perspective in the story? It sure would, and, because, uh, this, because this would be when you were, I hate to say customer, because like you said, it was more repositories of secret knowledge. Like most of the people coming in and out of Missing Link weren't customers, even though you were buying things. It was still just culture, you know? Yeah, it was, it was, almost, it was a community space in, in a way. So here's, here's what's, what's sort of interesting is that in a lot of ways – we were crossing paths probably frequently um, for years leading up to that. We just didn't realize it because I moved in. I was born in 79, and three days later, I moved into the house in Broadpool where my parents lived, where my mom still lives. And I was there till I moved out when I was 18. Um, so my whole life, I lived about four blocks from Broderville Avenue and that main drag through, through the village, so to speak. So my whole childhood was spent kind of in that area. And my earliest memories of Broderville are after Noble Romans was open. So, you know, like family outings and stuff, 
you know, weekend evenings, afternoons, we would walk or drive over to to Broadville Avenue for dinner or errands or whatever. And there was a Hooks drugstore right at the canal and college, which was like the canal goes immediately to the north of Broadville Avenue, right? Like kind of to the north of that, uh, that street light at college and, and 62nd slash Broadville Avenue. So the hooks is there and then you cross over the bridge and you're basically in the heart of Broadville. My, my childhood was kind of unremarkable in, insofar as like no, no major tragedy struck, thankfully. But uh, looking back, there just was not a whole lot of uh, communication or connection. Like I knew my parents loved me, but I also knew that sometimes there were just long periods of quiet um, where people weren't talking to each other or talking to me. And I don't, I don't know, it's chicken or the egg. I don't know if I developed a really strong internal life and dialogue because of that or if I just didn't seem outwardly bothered by it because I had a really rich internal life from an early age, but there weren't a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And even though I had friends with them, I felt alienated like from the very earliest days, like from as, as long as I can remember having friends, I felt like I didn't really connect with them. Like I didn't fit in. There were always pieces that didn't, that just didn't fit neatly into whatever um, or things that I just didn't feel like I could share because when I'd bring them up, I'd get weird stares or I'd get made fun of. So at some point my mom took me to hooks uh, to do something. And I always looked at the comic book spinner rack. Um, Yes. That's where my first ROM came from was a hooks grocery on the South side, the comic spinner rack. Uncanny X-Men number 212 was my first issue. And I'm pretty sure it was like the first comic, of any kind I bought because uh, I still have it. It's pretty fucking beat up now, but Wolverine is on it snarling with a shredded costume and just looks so fucking awesome uh, and aggressive that I picked it up and uh, I immediately fell in love with what I called the Eukany X-Men because I couldn't pronounce it right. (laughs) I had a a friend who called them the the Avengers around that same era. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because, I mean, part of it is how many people did you know that actually talked about this stuff out loud? Exactly. And, and, you, know, so and, and like, you know, and when I met Gian, he called Rom Rum. It's another, yeah, yeah and, it, and it's and it's totally that thing. I mean, I remember the first time hearing the word rapport, because in the X-Men, uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey would always talk about their psychic rapport. And that was just a word I was reading and never hearing spoken. So I always thought yeah. it was rapport. Yeah, and then then I heard someone say it for the first time. So yeah, totally. Yeah, that's why I don't make fun of people who mispronounce things because it's usually because they are readers and they just haven't heard it spoken. Yeah, so I can't remember what age I was, but that was my first introduction to comic culture. So just being in Broadripple at the time, I was about seven years old when I picked up that issue of Uncanny X Men. So from seven on i was sort of i was starting to immerse myself in comic books because i felt more i just felt more engaged there like it was more interesting than anything else and 
I, I understood at a very deep level what the X-Men was about before I could explain what it was about. And that's, you know, just alienation and finding community among people who also feel alienated because they're different, because they're whatever. So that kind of put me on the arc of being aware of other people who are different or choosing to stand out. So like I'm reading comic books about the X-Men and the Morlocks, and then we're going to dinner at Noble Romans as a family, which is a, like a regional pizza chain. And the one by us, there was like a, like a gallery window where you could watch people like Mm -hmm. throw the dough in the air. And you know, like any pizza place, there are high schoolers who work there and there are high schoolers who hang out there. And in Broderpool in 86, 87, the high schoolers who hung out there looked a lot like the Morlocks that I was reading about in the X-Men comics. So like, you know, kids have Liberty spikes and, you know, leather jackets and their skinheads. And there's like, you know, proto hardcore kids, whatever they looked like back then. And I just was aware that there was this thing happening around, you know, and like a couple of years after that, my dad bought me a skateboard at, at Future Shock when it was on Broderpool Avenue. I started mowing yards so that I'd have money so I could go to Comic Carnival in Broderpool and buy X-Men and whatever else I was reading, which my mom actually gave me a box not too long ago of, of comic books that I'd lost uh, in her house at some point and found like a 20-issue run of Namor that I bought. <laughs> and I like I have no fucking clue why I was into Namor, but I was. So I was sort of growing up in this stew of knowing that there was all this stuff happening in Broderpool and, and being aware of it as I was in like late elementary school uh, and early junior high, that's when the curfew arrests happened. And I don't know if you were in Broderpool that weekend, but basically kids hanging out in Broderpool fights, you know, vandalism, craziness had sort of come to a head and IPD basically swept up a bunch of kids in a curfew raid, essentially, and ended up like strip searching girls who were underage. And it was a shit show. And because these kids at the end of the day were coming from mostly upper middle class white homes, it was a fucking mess and people raised hell about it. So that was sort of like this cresting of youth culture and broader pool hanging out now as i'm remembering it did it did have a chilling effect on that area that was right before i was like 12 or 13 when i started going out every friday saturday or seven nights a week seven days a week when i was in you know on break i became a broader pool kid so just going and hanging out and the money that i would make from mowing yards or whatever would get split up you know, between comic books and McDonald's value meals and like cheap cigarettes because we were, you know, rebellious and we would go to the White River and you know smoke cigarettes and drink soda because you're 13 and what else are you going to do? So I was sort of living this this split life of going to a private school on scholarship where my sister went and feeling alienated there because our family was firmly middle class, but going there made me feel poor, which was bizarre because my dad was a IPS high school teacher. So I would go there and then realize like 
how much privilege I had. So I was like bouncing between these places where I didn't fit in. And then the friends that I had, the real friends I had were people from neighborhood schools that I would meet from hanging out or like the youth group at my parents' church. And inevitably I would just like end up in Broderpool being one of those kids watching older groups of kids because we were, you know, we were like the runts. So essentially, you know, I'm 13 hanging out in Broderpool and you're probably 18 in this at the same time in the same place, but having totally different experiences, if that makes sense. The junior high era for me was when I turned into the hardcore scene and we could probably go back and like start that portion of your story. But basically I started getting into heavy music when I was like 12 or 13, there was like some moment in time. I can't remember exactly when, but like I bought guns and roses. I bought Metallica. I bought public enemy. And then that quickly moved into Pantera. I went to go see Pantera and sacred Reich opened for them. And the singer for sacred Reich was wearing a tool shirt. So the next day I went out and bought a sacred Reich tape. I bought tools, opiate, which fucked me up and like turned me on to other weird stuff. So like, you know, I'm a 13 year old kid. I'm into grunge, whatever. I'm listening to Cowboys from Hell. I'm listening to uh, Bad Motor Finger. I'm listening to Pearl Jam. I'm listening to Metallica. I'm getting turned on to Slayer. I start playing in a band that before I joined as the singer, what they would play together was actually instrumental covers of the Split Lip 7 Inch. I'm in this space where I'm like, I'm, I'm aware of what's going on, but I don't really, I can't make sense of it. Um, so like, I know that there are these bands I'm, I'm going to shows. So I'm, I'm going to shows at, you know, at park tutor, there are shows in the cafeteria, there are shows in gymnasiums that are like fundraisers for amnesty international. And I'm going with like, you know, my Hesher friends from broader and I'm watching all these different bands. I'm watching Planet Earth, and I'm watching Cocapelli and Nina Foundry and Proper Burial. It's all the same thing to me, and I don't, I can't tell the difference between Split Lip and any of the other bands that are playing in in the area. You know, Wheelchair Bitch or whatever. Just that Split Lip and some of the bands that are playing with them are like a whole lot better and more polished, and there seems to be like a different weird energy around them than the other bands that intrigues me. So in seventh grade, I had a couple friends at my school, one of whom was named Travis and he was in seventh grade, but somehow he like had glommed on to the split lip scene. Like those kids somehow like had, I don't know if they'd taken him under his wing or what, but like he was 13 and he was hanging out with those guys. He was hanging out with Dino maybe because of tennis, but he turned me on to agnostic front. So in seventh grade, he was, he showed up to school with Doc Martens and braces and a shaved head, which was fucking wild. And I'd never like seen up close. Mm -hmm. And he, he handed me uh, agnostic fronts, one voice, which was an extremely important record for me in terms of shaping my taste in heavy music and my expectations of it. And around the same time, Another friend whose older brother actually went to Carmel High School and was straight edge and was, you know, I guess 
peripheral or, or friends with the Split Lip dudes, I got a copy of a mixtape that he'd made that had the doghouse version of Voice of the Voiceless. It had uh, Endpoints in a Time of Hate. It had the Jackhammer demo, maybe, or 7-inch. I can't remember. It had the Split Lip 7-inch and a couple other things. But that blew open the doors to an entirely different world. And I was hooked on that shit, even the stuff that's terrible now. Um, but, like, to 13-year-old me, Transcend was, like, mind-blowing. And Endpoint was mind-blowing. And around the same time, I'm in Broderpool, and I, like... I get this mixtape with some band called Endpoint on it, and then I'm outside of Noble Romans, and I see a kid coming out with a shirt that says Endpoint. I have no friends, and I'm like, secret knowledge. Like who? Like who are who are these people, and what are they into, and like how do I how do I get into it? Because like there still was no entry point. Like I know that there's this thing happening somewhere, but like I don't know how to get in, there's how an, to engage with an, it. There's an endpoint, but there's no entry point. To <laughs> exactly. Um, so around the same time again like there's all these different things that that keep pushing me further and further toward this thing that i'm looking for some of my friends and i go to a show at park tutor not realizing that it's for the upper school students only no middle school students and we're like in eighth grade but planet earth was playing and i love planet earth i've still got the three demo tapes that they made and we're stuck outside because we're just dumbass eighth graders and we can't get into this super cool upper school party. And at the end of the show, everyone leaves and we, we're let in and we like are in the gymnasium and planet earth is like playing on the basketball court. Um, or they're, they're starting to break down and like five of us walk up and we're like, we came to see you and we couldn't get in. And they're like, well, do you want us to play one song? And we're like, that'd be fucking awesome. Wow. Yeah, so they played Waiting Room by Fugazi. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And they're like, "It's yeah, it's, the song's called Waiting Room. It's by a band called Fugazi. So the next day I go out and I find Fugazi in the chain record store, which will always be my whip against, like, punk rock shouldn't be distributed through major channels. Like, back then, how else were you going to fucking find it? So... So Waiting Room is still one of my favorite songs, like literally top 10 song of any genre in my life because I have a sense memory of those older kids doing – I mean they were kids too. Like they were fucking 17, 18, but they seemed like gods you know, to me back then. So them showing me a little bit of grace, my showing my friends a little bit of grace, like altered the course of my life, you know, because I got hooked on all that shit. I got hooked on Endpoint and Split Lip and Fugazi and Agnostic Front, and I wanted more of it, and I started picking up on visual cues. I started seeing flyers, and I started I started understanding that there was this thing called the sitcom, and there was this thing called the lounge finger, and like... And we should probably say as, as points of reference that those were... DIY venues, as we didn't have reputable venues yeah, they were, for promoters. They were, you know. they were illegal, uh, unpermitted, all-ages show spaces. During the 80s, as I was getting 
into things in the late 80s and early 90s, I got the tail end of uh, people like Marvin P. Goldstein and uh, Bill Levine, who were these kind of fantastical, bizarro characters who, to some extent, were legitimate promoters and ran legitimate clubs. Uh, the Arlington Theater, which became the Ritz and is now an Ace Hardware store, I believe. Um, yes. Marvin Goldstein, um, I went to a Gwar concert that he did when I was 14. I, I think he was the promoter in, like, a conference room of a Howard Johnson's hotel. <laughs> uh, and this was Gore on their first album, but they still, you know, had the suits and throwing blood everywhere and, and big, you know, penises that were like shooting, shooting stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's like, and, and that, that's such an eighties thing, right. To like rent out like a banquet hall or whatever. And like a Howard Johnson's and have Gore play there. Yeah. But I mean, it was, it was a nineties thing. Cause I did that, you know, it's like, I, right. You know, the Knights of Columbus, uh, the, you know, Brebuff High School Cafeteria. I had my first the... kiss at that war show, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's unknown knowledge to you. No, yeah, I've, we've never talked about first kisses. Yeah, um, mine was the war at Howard Johnson's. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> anyway, go on. So, so, yeah, so I guess bring, bringing us up to, like, you know, where where our lives really started converging you know, by by '93, I was like full on diving into diving into the scene and trying to figure out like what's going on and 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 you know, I don't even know if Missing Link existed then. I can't remember where I was buying stuff, but you know, by '94, I'm like 14, 15, and I'm I get it. And I'm into it, and I'm like identifying as somebody who's into this stuff. And I'm by 15, I'm like going vegetarian and calling myself straight edge. But I'm very much an outsider. Like I'm not on the inside of that scene, whatever. Like I'm still just some dorky little kid um, on the fringe of what's actually happening. And I was trying, I was thinking about this the other day. I have no memory of when I became, I have no memory of how I got on the inside. I just remember that at some point I realized that I was on the inside and like I was involved in the scene and I did get the secret language and I did get the secret handshakes. And once I realized I was on the inside, I guarded that jealously and was vicious to anyone who threatened that position or didn't take it seriously enough. And it's weird. Cause like, it just, I can't, I have no recollection of how it happened. Just that one day it was, that's how it was. Thanks for listening to the second episode of Hoosier Illusion. I guarantee you that won't be the last time we hang out together at Roses and Lollipops, but definitely check out episode three because we're going to shift the scene to the cave on Dagobah.